Let me start us out <clears throat> with a word of prayer. Precious Lord, uh, we are so grateful for this time to be together. We ask, Lord, that you would be glorified. And we ask that you would send the Holy Spirit. We ask that he would speak and that we would have ears to hear. All to your glory. Amen. Well, gentlemen, the title of this talk is The End of Christendom, and it's a cheery title, of course. Some of you may recognize it. A uh, guy by the name of Malcolm Muggeridge, a, uh, a Brit, gave a talk to the Pascal Society in 1980, and he titled it The End of Christendom. And this isn't really patterned after that talk, but it's talking about the same idea uh, from, from a different angle. There have been a number of guys uh, over the years who have been warning us that the trajectory of our culture is in the wrong direction. So you read guys like G.K. Chesterton, <clears throat> you read C.S. Lewis, and I don't know that they're prophets uh, in the Old Testament sense, but I think they were prophetic in seeing where the new ideas that have pervaded our culture were going to lead us. And that leading is to the end of Christendom. Now, Let me see if I can frame this. Paul tells Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed all who desire to, to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, man, that's been true for many of our forebearers. But by and large, it's not been true for us. The reason it's not been true for us is because we live in a, quote, Christian culture. Now, that was true when I was a boy. When I was a boy, uh, I would say that <clears throat> life in the U.S., we, we, were, we were not a Christian nation, but there was a pervasive worldview that was more or less Christian and a morality that was more or less Christian. That is not true today. Today, we have a secular morality and a Marxist worldview. Now, that's a gigantic shift that took place over my short little lifespan. And what I want to talk about is how that happened and how we respond. But gentlemen, let me point, point out to you that Christianity was born in a savage empire, the Roman Empire. And God orchestrated, and we'll see this as we, as we move on, God orchestrated the theological center of earth 
from Jerusalem, now this is from God's perspective, not man's, but from God's perspective, the theological center, religious center of the universe was Jerusalem. And in the Bible, you see him systematically moving that center over to Rome and Christianity. It's interesting that Christian religion never really took deep root in the Middle East. Where am I getting that feedback from? But it did take root in Rome. It took root in Europe, and from there spread to the rest of the world. And it's all orchestrated by God. And the point is that we are now, I think, in the, nearing the end, and God is orchestrating these times, just like he did back in the ancient Roman Empire. He's not out of control. And what is happening is divinely motivated and divinely inspired. Now, guys, I have no idea if the Lord's return is imminent. But let me suggest to you that we are best served to believe that he's near. And I say that because there are, there are two exit doors off planet Earth. One is death, and the other is the rapture. And both are designed by God to motivate you to realize how short life is and that you will one day stand before Christ. So you are best served believing that the rapture is near, the return of the Lord is near. Now, men, prophecy is necessarily ambiguous. It's just written that way. The imagery of prophecy is, well, images require interpretation, right? And much of the prophecies of the New Testament and all the way back to Daniel contain images. And so you have to understand images. How do you take images and form words and concepts? So that's, what, that's, the, that's the task of trying to understand eschatology. And so it's therefore necessarily ambiguous. And all you can do is look at world events and, and say to yourself, can I see anything that matches up? And gentlemen, I can't be positive about this, but my sense is that God gives each generation sufficient reason to believe that his return is near. Now, what we're going to do as, as we try to dissect this business is uh, we'll start with Daniel chapter 2. And then we'll take three passages from the Gospels. And then we're going to trace the early development of the church in the book of Acts. And then we're going to do a sidebar and talk about inter-Advent history. That is, the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. We're going to take a, a sidebar and look at some certain developments that are important for us to understand, and then we're going to end with the book of Revelation. So that's where we're going. Um, questions to this point so far? Why do you say prophecy is necessarily ambiguous? 
Yeah, he asked, why, does, why did I say prophecy is necessarily ambiguous? Because it's imagery. How do you go from an image to an absolute concept without the possibility of error? We don't think in pictures, we think in words. And yet we are given pictures to understand the, and, and form concepts from them. That's difficult. Yes. Why did, would you share a thought on why God sent Paul to Europe instead of the Middle East? Oh, we're going to talk about that. Let's go. Okay. Do you have another one? It seem like, uh, and, and certainly does, that the world is, I, I agree with your progression, but it also seems like today, at least to me, that there's maybe an awakening. I sure hope you're right. I pray every day for a revival. I know there was one, or I don't know. I'm pretty sure there was one in the 70s, the late 60s, early 70s, with the Jesus movement and the hippies. But gentlemen, as wonderful as that was, that also contributed mightily to the apostasy that the church is now in. Any other questions? All right, guys, we got ground to cover. Let's go. Men, if the time seemed perilous, and I personally don't know anybody, Christian or non-Christian, who isn't scared, Got to remember that it is the Lord Christ who is dialing up events. And therefore, the outcome is already determined. God's works were finished from the foundation of the world. It's done. The victory is assured. We just have to be strong and courageous and, and act like men. Now, what is Christendom and why is it important? I'd suggest to you men that Christendom is a man-made construct, that it is the culture that is produced by Christianity in the West. And it is the invention of man, if you want, if you want to date it, probably the best date would be the time of Constantine in the fourth century, about 313 AD was the um, Edict of Milan, we'll talk more about that uh, later. And it was systematized by Augustine in the City of God. So that's arguably the birth of this man-made construct called Christendom. And it affected, it, it became a, a political, um, commercial, and religious entity. It includes the true church, but it includes much more than the true church. Again, the true church is not the construct of a man. True church is from Jesus and Jesus alone. He and he alone builds his church. Everything else that we see around the church is human. Now, the true church transcends space in time. It is heavenly. But Christendom 
is earthbound. Now I want to I want to show you a, a couple of pictures in just two seconds. But Ben, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm sort of bad-mouthing Christendom, and I've got I've to put a, an appendix to that. It produced the greatest culture the world has ever known. And you and I have been beneficiaries of that culture. Gentlemen, God showered blessings on the West when he turned Paul to Europe to, send, to, to bring the gospel to the West. And we are the beneficiaries of that. We haven't been the best stewards of it, but we've been the beneficiaries of it. And I want to give you a pictorial representation of what I mean by um, Christendom. See, I've got my handy-dandy Winston Parker. There you go. This is a picture of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. It's the largest church in the world. They estimate that it seats 60,000 people. It's magnificent. And you can see there's gold everywhere, uh, marble everywhere, and it's absolutely stunning. And gentlemen, this is not a knock on the Catholic Church at all. This is, an, this is, in my view, this is a great way to understand pictorially what Christendom is. Now, how did this come about? Let me suggest that right around the time of Constantine, when he became a Christian, he invited Christians into the palace, and the interests of the church and the interests of the state began to merge. And let me suggest, men, that, and we'll talk more about the, about the reasons for this, but in so doing, temporal interests and eternal interests became intertwined. See, the interests of the state are purely temporal. The interests of the church are supposed to be eternal. And men, every one of us knows from personal experience that the interest of that which is temporal impresses itself in a stronger fashion than to the interests of the eternal. And so that happened to the church. It diverted what should have been an eternal focus to the temporal, okay? And it came because, in effect, the church was offered the kingdoms of the world. You got, you've got the Roman Empire in your hip pocket, Christians. And the church said, yes, we'll take the kingdoms of the world. Now this is, when you, when you go into this um, great cathedral, if there's the, the, the doors are right here. And if you go in the doors and you look this way, you see this. This is the Pieta by Michelangelo. It's Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, holding his crucified body. And remind yourselves, men, that when, when he started his ministry, he also was offered the kingdoms of the world. And he didn't say, no, I don't want them. He said, I won't bow down to you to get them. And so, let me suggest that 
if this is Christendom, this is where true Christianity leads. Because true Christianity involves self-denial. It involves death. As Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's a true statement. Christianity, this side of the grave, is about death and dying every day. Gentlemen, it, it is one of the principles that runs through the Bible from cover to cover. Humility and sacrifice precede glory and greatness. See, that's not the end of the road. Because he now, he's got all the kingdoms. He's got all the glory. All the kingdoms in heaven, and one day he'll come back to earth and reign here. Questions or comments about this? Do you understand? Help us um, understand the word church or the concept of church. I always think of it as a building. That's how I grew up. Yeah, church is a purely cultural phenomenon. So Jesus in his ministry is, is standing in a boat. And he's preaching to people standing on land. That's church. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in their midst. That's the lowest common denominator of the church. The church is people plus Jesus plus nothing. That's all. Everything else we build around it is not forbidden. But it's not church. And gentlemen, uh, I'm blocking the name of the guy who said this. Who wrote 1980? George Orwell. George Orwell says, the slovenliness of our language makes it very easy for us to have foolish thoughts. And gentlemen, that applies to how we think about the church. You have to think very crisply and very biblically about the church. The church is Jesus and his people, period. Now, men, just one more comment about this. No one can serve two masters. That's been pointed out a couple times already. We think, we think we can serve this, and I don't, by that I don't mean the church, although that could be your, your particular vice. By this I mean the world. We think we can serve this and this. You can't. Gentlemen, if you, if you take nothing else from this talk, burn that into your brain. This is a binary choice. You either say, I want what the world has, or I want Jesus Christ, and will pay any price to have him. It's a binary decision. And I, I just plead with you, don't leave this place without making that decision. Okay, we'll start getting into some of the nitty-gritty. The Bible traces eschatology largely through the books of Daniel and Revelation. 
and Daniel gives the first, gives, gives big picture type information that stretches over millennia. Whereas Revelation is more detailed and it covers the last seven years of this dispensation. Daniel, however, sets the stage for understanding Revelation. Very difficult to understand Revelation without Daniel. So, let's get started with Daniel. We're going to go to chapter 2, where Daniel interprets a dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. And in that dream, Daniel says there are three kingdoms that dominate Israel's history from the time of Daniel until Christ. The Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, and the, Gre the kingdom of Greece. And he then describes a fourth kingdom, Rome, in the following way. So this is Daniel chapter 2, verse 40. So this is after describing Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. So Daniel 2.40 speaks of ancient Rome. And that ancient, that kingdom of ancient Rome is the kingdom into which Jesus is born. Okay? Together so far? Yeah. All right, bueno. Now, there's a problem with this. And the problem is this. We know that after ancient Rome's, there were many other world empires. But Daniel says, there's only one. And he stops at Rome. So we got, we got to figure out how to solve that problem because it doesn't square with most people's understanding of world history. I'd suggest to you men that there is a break in time between Daniel 2.40 and Daniel 41 to 44. And this break in time is what Jesus refers to as the time of the Gentiles. And the time of the Gentiles is this time in which God begins to set aside the nation Israel and turn to the Gentile peoples. Okay, that's the time of the Gentiles. And that has a, a beginning and it has an end. And we're getting closer and closer to that end. The time of the Gentiles, the door is beginning to close. So, the time of the Gentiles includes the church age and it involves the rejection of Israel, of Christ, and Christ of Israel. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 21, verse 43. He says, therefore I say to you, this is Israel, I say to you, Israel, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. That is Christ saying God's commitment to Israel nationally remains intact, but as the people of God, he is shifting to the Gentiles. It's a very important verse. You understand what, he, what he's saying altogether? It's Matthew 21, 43. 
Now, both Daniel and Revelation say that that church is going to be centered in Rome. But right now, when Jesus says these words, the religious center of the world, from God's perspective, is Jerusalem. So God has to move the religious center from Jerusalem over to Rome. And so that process is what I want to talk about next, okay? So go to um, John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verses 20 to 23. There's a very strange exchange that takes place. It goes like this. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them saying, get his answer. So here's the, here's the request. Some Greeks want to see you, Jesus. And so Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Connect the dots. What's that about? Let me suggest to you <clears throat> that what it's about is that Christ and the Father had some sort of understanding that when the Greeks start coming, when the, when the Gentiles start coming to him, it's time to go to the cross. And chapter, this is chapter 12 of John, chapters 13 and 17 are the upper room discourse where Christ gives his last instru <coughs> instructions to his disciples and then the cross. So he's dialed in as soon as these Greeks come to him. Okay, now, so the Greeks are Western and they're Gentile. Now, next we got to fast forward to past the cross, past the resurrection, past Pentecost, and the beginning of the church. And so that takes us to Acts, and we don't have time to, to explicate that whole book, which is beyond my reach anyway. But Peter is the focus of the beginning of Acts. And up until about 10 or 11, he's the, he's the guy. And then you have the conversion of, of Saul, who becomes Paul, and he becomes then the focus of the rest of Acts. And so you move into chapter 15, and a world-changing event took place. There was a debate at the Jerusalem Council about the place of the law in Christianity. And seemingly, everybody but the Apostle Paul said, well, of course we have to obey the law. It's God-given. It's eternal. Of course we have to obey it. And Paul says, no. Not only do we not obey it, if you bring it, into the religion, go to hell. He's, he, when you read the book of Galatians, he is just boom. I mean, there is no prisoners. And so severing the law from Christianity 
ensured that Christianity would not become just another sect of Judaism. It ensured that it would become a separate religion. And not only that, it ensured so that when guys like us come to Christ, we don't have to get circumcised. <laughs> Happy day, right? <laughs> so Acts 15 is a really important chapter. But Acts 16 is equally important because in Acts 16, Paul wants to take the gospel to Asia. And the Holy Spirit says negative. Let me read this for you. It's Acts 16, <coughs> verses uh, 6 through 10. They, that is Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Having been forbidden. Wow. Okay. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia, Macedonia is Europe, okay? A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach, to the, gospel, preach the gospel to them. Now, gentlemen, that's a world-changing event because Christianity came to the West, came to Europe and the West, later North America. And it made, as I pointed out earlier, this the greatest culture the world has ever seen and it has everything to do with Jesus Christ and Christianity plus nothing. Had he gone elsewhere, that place would have been great, whether Asia or Africa or someplace else. It is Christ that made the West great. And it is he upon whom we're turning our back. Now, I want to stop right there and ask for any questions. I think, yeah. So do you care to make some conjecture as to why he chose Europe versus Asia? Yep, I sure will, in about 12 seconds. <laughs> a, little, a little bit longer than that, but yes, I will. Yes, sir. What's the rapture exactly and Jesus coming to earth? My brother, if you read First uh, Thessalonians 4, starting at verse 13 to the end of the chapter, It'll tell you all about the rapture. But in a nutshell, what it is, is the Thessalonians wanted to know, you know, we've been following Jesus and we've had friends and relatives who have died. What happens to them? And Paul says, in answer to that question, the Lord is going to come back. Jesus will come back. And when he comes back, he will bring all the dead in Christ and you who are still alive will be, leave the planet, you'll go up and meet Christ in the air, and we'll all be changed and transformed into resurrected bodies. That's the sum and substance of the, the, the Cliff Notes version of that. First Thess 4, 13 and following. I've, I've heard it said that... Microphone, please. Microphone. I don't know who, what, I've just heard 
have never paid attention to it until it's going to be a thousand years of paradise on earth. After the rapture. What's, yeah. what's that? Now, don't have time. <laughs> we, can, we can take it in the Q&A. <coughs> yes, KK. Uh, going back to your early statement, um, you said the church is a combination of a, a handful of believers and Christ and nothing else. But in the Bible, like in First Timothy, it clearly says about the governance of a local church. And uh, also in Ephesians 4.11, there are different roles in the church, like apostle, prophets, evangelists, teachers, and pastors. How do you harmonize these two? Yeah, no problem. There's a difference between playing a role and occupying an office. And we're going to talk about this in more detail, but gentlemen, I think part of the bargain that was made with Constantine is that we're going to make a clergy-laity distinction, and the clergy is going to tell the laity what to do. And men, let me suggest to you that that is, that is recapitulating the mistake that Israel made way back when. Israel started out as a theocracy. God was to rule them. And Israel said, no soap. We don't want that. We want a king. We want a man to tell us what to do. We don't want God telling us what to do. And the church did the same thing beginning about that time and going forward. We want men to tell us what to do. We don't want the Holy Spirit. We don't trust him to tell us what to do. Now that does not preclude different roles that the Holy Spirit gives different gifts to different men. And we're deficient in that, to be sure. But we, we've, the church historically has not trusted the Holy Spirit to run it. The appointment of the different roles in the church is kind of like, uh, in theological term, is a permissive will, right? Yes, I think that's exactly right. Uh, because the church came to the West, does that impose a like responsibility for us to take it elsewhere for the rest of us, or is it still just to the evangelists, to the ones gifted with ministry outside of their home t hometown? That kind of thing. Is that for the rest of us, or is that changed at all? Well, brother, when my, my belief is that God has sprinkled breadcrumbs across the, across the globe, and different cultures have things in them where when they hear the gospel, they say, oh, yeah, we already knew that. That's, that's right. I, you, yeah, Jesus is the one. But we've had this loaf of, many loaves of bread dropped on us, and we've been poor stewards of it. We are to go to all the nations. Who in this room is to be part of that? I don't know. That's for each of us to decide before the Lord Jesus. But of course, the gospel is to go to ho the whole world. Is there, is there a clinics around here? My nose is just, oh, I see something right there. Thank you. Okay. 
Let's go to, we've been through Acts 16, taking the church to, uh, taking Christ to Europe. So after Acts 16, after ministering in Greece and Ephesus, Paul begins to look to go to Jerusalem. And you see this from Acts 19 to 21, his desire to go to Jerusalem. And he eventually ends up in Jerusalem. And by the time you get to Acts 23, he's in Jerusalem and he's on trial for his life. Notice what happens there. This is Acts 23, verse 11. Paul's in prison. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. So it's Christ himself saying to Paul, you're in Jerusalem now, but you got to get to Rome. So here's this Rome, Rome, Rome push that begins at that point. Now, the rest of Acts 23 to 26, 26 records Paul's legal trials that eventuate in him being sent and tried in Rome. Acts 27 in the first half of 28 record that journey from Jerusalem to Rome. Now Acts 28 is the last chapter of Acts. And in verse 14 is, there, is the arrival of Paul. It says, there we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And thus we came to Rome. And then verses 30 and 31 are the last two verses of Acts. And he, that is Paul, he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. So here's Paul in the center of what is going to become Christianity. And he's preaching freely. And so the church is beginning now to take root in Rome. And all this, men, is a work of God. That was the point of going through these verses. It's God directing this. Paul is just an unworthy slave like us. Get it? So, again, Rome is the most, most ruthless play, empire in the world. And God takes Paul and later Peter, puts them in Rome, and the church begins to explode And those Christians, those first Christians, starting about 64, 66, I can't remember the date. Some people date it different times. A.D., Nero begins to persecute them. And the church goes through 10 persecutions all the way up to 310 A.D. Rome. That's where he brought them. Now, men... The reason Rome is the place is because of Daniel's prophecy. Daniel said the last kingdom is Rome. 
Now we know it's when Jesus came, he was born into the Roman Empire. But Daniel says the Lord will return during that same Roman Empire. So we got a puzzle to figure out how, because the Roman Empire, that ancient Roman Empire, is dead as Julius Caesar. It ain't here. So how, do we, how does this puzzle work? Now, one other comment about, uh, about prophecy. As far as I can tell, let, let me back up. Because of, of what Daniel says and because of what God did by moving Paul and Peter to Rome, the West becomes the eschatological center of the world. The history of the West is what you have to understand if you're going to understand prophecy. And as far as I can tell, there are no prophecies concerning Israel that are yet to be fulfilled. I can't find a specific prophecy of Israel in the end times. Now you say, well, what about the temple? The temple doesn't have to be rebuilt before Jesus returns. It can be built any time. We're not told when that temple gets rebuilt. It has to be rebuilt, but it can be built within the tribulation. So I can't find any prophecies. I'm suggesting the prophecies are all about the West, and so you've got to keep your eyes on the West. Any questions about that? Okay, let's go back to Daniel for a second. Because this, we've got to unwrap this puzzle of Rome. Daniel chapter 2 again, and let me read verse 40 one more time. <clears throat> then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. Again, men, that is ancient Rome, the kingdom into which Jesus was born. Okay? Now, there's a, there's a time gap between verse 40 and verse 41. So I'm going to pick it up at verse 41. In that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay, as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle, and in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men. But they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. Now, this is what I'm talking about. We're given an image, okay? We're given an image of this giant statue. And by the time you get down to the, the legs here, the lower legs, it's made of solid iron. But then when you get to the feet and the toes, it's iron and clay. So... How do you make sense of that? Let me suggest to you that the feet and the toes are the resurrection of the Roman Empire. That Daniel is describing the rebirth of Rome, which in fact took place. And with the rebirth of Rome, Christendom. Now, I'm going to read, how, how am I doing on time, Trevor? Uh, 
Oh, sweet. Okay. Let, let me read to you from somebody a lot more eloquent than I am about what I mean by this reconstitution of the Roman Empire. This is from G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy. In the last chapter of that book, the title of which is Authority and the Adventurer. Listen to, the, listen to what he says. He says, I take on the idea that Christianity belongs to the Dark Ages. Here, I did not satisfy myself with reading modern generalizations. I read a little history. And in history, I found that Christianity, so far from belonging to the Dark Ages, was the one path across the Dark Ages that was not dark. It was a shining bridge connecting two shining civilizations. If anyone says that the faith arose in ignorance and savagery, the answer is simple, it didn't. It arose in the Mediterranean civilization in the full summer of the Roman Empire. Okay, that's the first, that's Roman Empire number one. The world was swarming with skeptics and pantheism was as plain as the sun when Constantine nailed the cross to the mast, Constantine, fourth century AD. It is perfectly true that afterwards the ship sank that's the Dark Ages. But it is far more extraordinary that the ship came up again, okay? This is the reconstitution of, of ancient, Ro of the old Roman Empire. The ship came up again, repainted and glittering with the cross still at the top. This is the amazing thing the religion did. It turned a sunken ship into a submarine. The ark lived under the load of waters. After being buried under the debris of dynasties and clans, we arose and remembered Rome. If our faith had been a mere fad of the fading empire, fad would have followed fad in the twilight. And if the civilization ever reemerged, and many such have never reemerged, it would have been under some new barbaric flag. But the Christian church was the last life of the old society. Christian church was the last life of ancient Rome and was also the first life of the new. She took the people who were forgetting how to make an arch and she taught them to invent the Gothic arch. In a word, the most absurd thing that could be said of the church is the thing we have all heard said of it. How can we say the church wishes to bring us back into the dark ages? The church was the only thing that ever brought us out of them. Do you understand what he's saying? This is historically what happened. Ancient Rome is conquered by the barbarians around 476 AD, but it's Christian by then. And then it's plagued by the other hordes that are, that are uh, marauding Rome, and the Dark Ages come upon it. But Christianity persisted. Christianity was now the flag of Rome. And when those dark ages begin to end, what Chesterton is describing is how modern Europe 
which is the resurrection of the old empire, modern Europe, becomes the resurrected Rome. This is the feet and the toes of clay that Daniel predicted. Questions or comments? Do you understand this? Kevin? The feet and toes, it represents modern Europe and Christendom. It's the reconstitution of the ancient Roman Empire. And I would add, Kevin, that North America is part of that because though we are not geographically part of ancient Rome, culturally we are. Phone, microphone. Jerry, are you describing European Renaissance? Yes, but it, it's, it's, all, it's before that. The Renaissance is like 1200. It, this started all before that. Chesterton's point is that when Rome sunk, she had the Christian flag on her. But when she came back, she still had that Christian flag and flourished and became what we now are proud to call Christendom or used to be proud to call Christendom. Are you baffled? Are you guys okay? All right, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep marching. And gentlemen, eschatologically, it is in this reconstituted form of Rome that Jesus returns. Now, that reconstitution took place a long time ago, so a lot of years have passed which is part of the reason why I say previous cultures, previous Christians who thought the return of Jesus was imminent were wrong, but they were right. They believed exactly what God wanted them to believe. We may be wrong that his return is imminent, but he wants you to believe that it's imminent because he wants you motivated knowing your time is short and you have no idea which exit door you're gonna go through. You're gonna go through death, or we're going to go through the rapture and to live accordingly and go back and make your choice. You can't have both of these. You have to pick. Yeah, Bryce. So I'm trying to just track the point of all this. Are you saying, so Christianity was wed to the government, the earthly government of Rome, and both went underwater, but when they reemerged, Rome was reconstituted, but Christianity was still wed to that reconstituted Rome. Is that kind of yes. where we come up? And that's why you see in Europe state churches. The United States has never had state churches, but still we have wedded, when the United States came to become an entity. It did so under the influence of two great systems of thought. The first is Christianity, Puritan Christianity particularly. And the second were the ideas of the Enlightenment. And though we never had a state church, we as an American people have been intertwined with the thinking of both of those and produced more or less the same thing, if not 
a state church, we are culturally Christian, et cetera, et cetera. Make sense? the problem that right now we are still wed to that state government Christianity yeah. and what I'm yeah where I'm going Bryce is that 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 intertwining has come apart that's why we're all so scared the change is is massive Trevor Jerry was it Marxism that broke that apart I'm gonna I'm gonna go through this Real quick, real quickly, Trevor, but if I don't answer your question, come back at me, okay? So, that begs the question then, how exactly did Christendom begin? And I'm gonna show you a PowerPoint that I haven't used forever in a day. Um, and I'll try to make this as painless as possible. Gentlemen, with, with respect to knowledge, it must be grounded in something. And for every human being, you have to ground your knowledge in things you can't prove, which is just another way of saying that everybody walks by faith. And so the two options, we could dissect this out more, more fully, but I'm just gonna make it simple. The two options our revelation, and for, in this case, I'm talking about the Bible on the one hand, and man's reason on the other. And I would suggest to you men that you and I are a product of both of those. And that on, on the revelation side of the equation, it begins with Abraham. Moves down to Moses, David, Babylonian captivity, Book of Malachi, last book in the Bible, last one written, and then finally Christ. So on this side of the, th the equation is our Jewish heritage that produced Jesus Christ. Okay, good so far? I'm gonna come back to the Edict of Milan in just a minute. Actually, let me say this. In this period, between Malachi and Christ, the prophets are not speaking. The prophets of Israel are not speaking. But that doesn't mean the world is silent. The world is not silent because over on this side, these guys are here. Socrates taught Plato, Plato taught Aristotle, and Alexander took that thinking to the rest of the world. But gentlemen, remember, Alexander's empire was largely an Eastern empire. It did affect Rome, and eventually Greek uh, philosophy and Greek culture permeated all of Europe. And so Alexander's influence was profound. Now what the church began to do in this period here between Christ and the Edict of Milan, and parenthetically, the Edict of Milan was issued by Constantine, emperor of Rome, after he became a Christian, and he, it was, the edict officially sanctioned Christianity as permissible to practice. So they went from being hunted down by the state to being invited into the emperor's court to consult with him. It was a, it was a sea change. And <clears throat> during this time, between Christ and that edict, 
the theologians of the church were busy wedding, particularly Plato, to Christian thought. Okay? Good so far? Augustine really systematically put all of the pieces together. And so here we are at, at, at um, 400 AD. And let me suggest, men, three important things are going on in this time period. Number one is taking Plato and integrating him with Christian theology. That, that was a very important misstep. The second thing is this wedding of church and state interests. That took place during this time as well. And the third thing that took place during this time was the church adopted the Roman hierarchy of governance. And it was not the governance of the New Testament. And so, in effect, men, what this was about was saying, and, and this is not critical. It was, I, I think they were wrong, but I think if I'd been there, I'd have done the same thing. They basically said, crud, man, we don't, we don't have to be chased anymore. Let's, let's Christianize everything. I mean, Jesus is Lord, and we need to Christianize all of the, all of the uh, structures and institutions of the world. And that's exactly what they went, went out to do. And it's not men that they ignored E squared. It's not that they ignored evangelism and edification. It's that it got subordinated. And the church, no one can serve two masters. You're either motivated by the temporal or you're motivated by the eternal. Kevin? What's, what's an example of Plato thinking being wedded with Christian? Kevin, Plato, his greatest work is the Republic. And the Republic is a treatise on, <clears throat> on justice. And in it, he describes the just city. And in it, the just city, according to Plato, is ruled by the philosopher kings. Smart guys, right? Smart guys need to tell us dummies what to do. So he, puts the, he, he wanted to put the philosopher kings as the head of the human race. And as part of that program, the philosopher, there, there would be no free marriage. The philosopher kings would appoint who marries who, to get the best breeding. Any children of those marriages would be taken by the state and educated by the state. Any child that was defective in any way would be put on the top of the hill to die. And these, with the philosopher kings, that's how they think. Now, gentlemen, that's come back to haunt us. That's what our philosopher kings, in effect, are doing. You don't want your baby? Abort it. Oh, I see by that scan your kid's got a defect. You better kill it. And so on. And they, they want to tell us not based on any authority save the authority of their own reason, their own intellect. And it always has to do, it always ends 
with the building of an earthly utopia. Anything else? Okay. All right. Now, so this period of time from roughly 400 to roughly 1700 is called the medieval synthesis because it's a synthesis of Christianity and Greek thought. But this synthesis comes apart down here. This is roughly 1700. And I'm not going to go through all these, but it starts roughly around 1300 when there were three cataclysms that hit Europe. One was the Black Plague. Um, one was the so-called Babylonian captivity of the church. And the third was... can't remember. can't remember what the third was. Um, oh, the Hundred Years' War between France and England. So that begins to weaken the influence of the church. The Renaissance further weakens the influence of the church because the Renaissance is the bringing in of more Greek thought into the church, into Europe. Protestant Reformation, for all the good that came of it, it split the church and therefore weakened it as a unified body. Now we really get rolling because the scientific revolution sets aside, again, remember these first scientists, they were all philosophers and almost all of them were Christian. They believed that God was lawful and that therefore the universe is run in a lawful fashion and they could discover those laws and they began to do it. Now, Technology followed from that um, a couple centuries later. But what intervened was the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment figures were of one mind on the following. They said, we reject all authority save the authority of reason. And we specifically reject the authority of the Bible and the church and also, particularly in France, the authority of the kings, hence the French Revolution. So this, this was a monumental uh, event that caused a rift between the religious side, Christianity, and the secular side. Now, it has taken three plus centuries for all the stuff that came out of the Enlightenment. Romanticism, they, um, the, the Enlightenment figures said uh, reason is the final authority. The Romantics said no, it's, it's emotions. Good call. <laughs> Eventually it resulted in cultural Marxism, uh, which is political correctness, which is the tool that was used to destroy Christianity. And it is specifically anti-male. The destruction of men, masculinity, manliness have to go. And the second thing that has to go is the nuclear family. And gentlemen, my entire lifetime, I've watched this assault on manhood and on the nuclear family. We say, we hear 
that the war is, in, is on women. That is a lie. Women are killing men. And you are toxic. Another lie. But men, we have to step up and act like men. We are now, in my opinion, we have a Marxist worldview in that as a culture we say the past is dire and must be erased and must be replaced. Whatever was good in the past is now bad in our time and whatever was down on the past must become up in the present. That's what that's all about. And it's a worldview. And secularism is a moral doctrine. The doctrine that morality should be based solely on the well-being of mankind in the present life to the exclusion of all considerations drawn from belief in God or in a future state. Got that? You go ahead and have God if you want, but you can't bring him into the public arena because he's got nothing to do with nothing. And we're going to build our world on what we think is best and take your Bible and throw it away. Now the result of all of this has become the apostate church because the church has been drinking from these wells for 300 years or more and we've become apostate. Now that's, that's that. Apostate means falling away from the faith. Microphone. So in... 1923, cultural Marxism, I don't know what it means, but is it like a specific agenda uh, oriented to men? Is that what you were saying? Yes. Marx's original theory made some predictions. They were all, he made three predictions and he was wrong on all three of them. And so that original theory is largely a social theory. The cultural Marxist said the reason Marx was wrong was because he did not take into effect the power of culture. And so what we have to do is destroy Christian culture and Western culture in order to get our objectives done. And of course, the heart of, of, of Christian culture is Christ and the Bible. And men are right below that. And so we have to get rid of Jesus, we have to get rid of men, we have to get rid of the nuclear family, and now we're off to the races. Okay. All right, so I've already said the, the, the three things that this did. Um, how much time do I have, Trevor? I don't know. Yeah, gentlemen, um, let me just concentrate on, on the church piece of this and the idea of, of wanting men to rule over us rather than the Holy Spirit. We want men to rule over us because we think we can control them, right? 
If you don't do what I say, I'll just vote you out of office and get the right guy in there. But you can't control the Holy Spirit. Not only that, it just, it's so fuzzy, right? And men, let me just encourage you that to, to do some work in studying what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. Everybody in this room who knows Jesus Christ has a gift, at least one. And many of those gifts, there's a handful of those gifts that are speaking gifts. Most of them are not speaking gifts. And men, we need to encourage one another in both sides of that. But we've been particularly, I feel myself particularly negligent in encouraging the non-speaking gifts among us. And the body is a poorer body because we have neglected the Holy Spirit that is in us to serve one another. Gentlemen, the Holy Spirit points us to Jesus. The Holy Spirit is about love and serving. It is not about power and control. This is why the greatest among us has to be servant of all. Why there's only, and why there's only one Lord who is over all. I mean, our job is to <coughs> magnify Christ in every way possible. And my encouragement to you is get in the game on that. The body needs you. It's really important. As men, without having some sense of this, you wander through life rather aimlessly. And we all have the same purpose in one sense. We all have the same purpose of this life is preparation for eternity. That's true for all of us. We all have a unique purpose in how to get there. Scott was talking last night about the race in 1 Corinthians 9. You have a race to run designed by God for you. <clears throat> and that race includes the exercise of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that God has given you. Get in the game. Now, gentlemen, this intertwining of state, church, which gave rise to the birth of Christendom, is unwinding. As I said, when I was a boy, the United States had a more or less Christian worldview and a more or less Christian morality. That is not the, tr not the truth anymore. That is not true of us. We have a secular morality, which is, again, all about life on earth. Forget anything that has to do with God or heaven. That's what secularism says. It's a moral doctrine. And we have a Marxist worldview. The world keeps telling us, dire past, dire past, dire past, change, change, change. And it has everything to do, gentlemen, with 
not uniting us, but dividing us. And it, you, it divides us on the basis of race, divides us on the base of, basis of ethnicity, <clears throat> it divides us on the basis of gender. And gentlemen, we cannot afford the luxury of believing that stuff. The Bible is true, and if it is true, then we have to act like it. You cannot wed the Bible to either Marxism or secularism. And both of them are lies. Now again, men, because the church will not, or the, the state does not have your back as a Christian, my fear for us is that the price tag of being a follower of Jesus is going to go up. That it will cost us. I'm not a prophet. I don't know that that's true. But it doesn't look too hopeful to me. Questions or comments about that? Yeah, Rick? Can you, you briefly mentioned the Jesus movement in the 60s. Can you touch on that a little bit? Rick, there's a, there's a film called um, Jesus Revolution. And it was in all the theaters. You can stream it. Uh, I think it's on Netflix, maybe. And it portrays what happened. There was a, a Christian revival. It was a real deal. The hippies in uh, mass came to Christ. You, you would go to, to, in certain churches, they passed the plate and guys were dropping their weed in there and whatever else they were taking. And uh, I mean, it was, it was real. But I think what, what the, the downside of it was, they brought a lot of their old thinking into the church. And part of that thinking was, listen, we, we raised hell on campus and we shut them down and there were no consequences for us. And so now we come into Christianity, we read the doctrine of grace, and we say, we were right. There are no consequences. And gentlemen, if there is a, if there is a satanic inspired idea, it is that. The belief that there are no eternal consequences for temporal behavior gets you at least in the zip code of hell. You and I will be judged, period, full stop. And if that doesn't sober you, you don't know the God you're dealing with. Gentlemen, in Christianity, there's two gods. There's God as I want him to be, and he's a sugar daddy. And then there's God as he really is. That first God is very easy to love. That second one is an acquired taste. Jesus' revolution. Anything else? Yes, in the back there. Re rewinding church history, uh, the, the early church, um, sect of Judaism, meeting in synagogues, and then the transition to the West. Would you agree that the West uh, rejected that model because of they found it. They didn't want to be associated with the Jews because of persecution, and we can thrive. And yeah, my brother, it's, it, the, the story 
behind that is too long to go into, but I think what it did for much of institutional uh, Christianity is to make it anti-Semitic. And that has been true in Europe ever since. There's an anti-Semitic thread that runs through Europe, and I'm sure this country as well, but it's particularly strong in Europe. And it has to do with what you just talked about. The, the, those early fathers believed that God had turned his back forever on Israel, and we are now the favored ones. God did turn his back on Israel, but not forever. He returns to them when he's done with us. And parenthetically, Israel rejected their Messiah, and that is what the church is in the process of doing right now. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Jerry, you started with us. secular world. I think that's what you're trying to tell yeah. us to expect and prepare for. Yeah. The final form of Christendom is the apostate church. And this is talked about in 2 Thess chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. The apostasy is a necessary part of the plan of God and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna really fast forward now and we're gonna go to Revelation chapter 6, uh, um, is that right? No, chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. And I want to give you what I think is a pictorial representation of, of what we're driving at. This is Revelation 17, starting at verse 1. <clears throat> then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her, her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality, and on her head a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I greatly wondered. Let me suggest to you men that the harlot is apostate Christianity. The beast upon which she rides is the last manifestation of that Roman state. It represents the Antichrist and his administration and the apostate church and that entity are in league. But it doesn't go well. Um, this is continuing in Revelation 17. 
And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, the ten horns represent ten kings. The ten horns which you saw and the beast, beast is the Antichrist. These will hate the harlot and will make her the harlot. That is Christendom. They're going to hate Christendom. Will <coughs> hate the harlot and make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose. Did you catch that? God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by, ha by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. Now, the, ch the state turns then against the apostate church, but it also turns against the true church. This is Revelation 13, verse 7. It was also given to him, the Antichrist, to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to them. Now, the point for reading these to you is, being apostate, being a lukewarm Christian won't save you. When the Antichrist unleashes hell on us, being a lukewarm Christian will not save you. He's coming after all of us. Is that imminent? I don't know. I just know that when he comes, it's the true believers and the marginal ones as well. Last words. Let me read 2 Timothy 1, uh, 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 4. It includes our verse up here. It says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Gentlemen, the question before the house is, are you a soldier? Are you entangled with the things of the world? If your spiritual head is screwed on, you remember God's in control. He's got your best interest at heart. The outcome has already been determined. The only question is, who gets a cut of the action? Who gets a piece of it? Who gets to be a good soldier? and who falls by the wayside. Gentlemen, God guided the church through that first Roman Empire, and he is guiding us today. Nothing has changed. We need to be strong in the Lord. And men, how we handle whatever is ahead, whatever is ahead, whether it's peace and prosperity or something else, is directly a product of the quality of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me repeat that. The quality of how you handle whatever comes is a product of the quality of your relationship with Jesus. Men, be strong, be courageous, act like men, be good soldiers. Amen.